0: Today, I'm with Bob, an intellectual property lawyer and great lab volunteer. Bob, thanks for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me, Robin. Very excited to be here.
0: So let's just jump right in. You actually got your start with drinking in what is a pretty common and typical way, which was involving a physical accident. Tell us about that.
1: I would go further back and say my first exposure to alcohol was well before the accident that you're talking about and it was still very common it was uh, after a birthday my parents thought it was time to have a glass of wine and uh, I they poured the glass of wine I enjoyed the glass of wine with my parents and it was a, a wonderful experience but that's how wine and alcohol in general were for me for several years I would say that my drinking from there was very normal, at least as I understand normal being an alcoholic. I think the idea of normal drinking is a foreign concept to me that I just try to understand from other people's perspectives. But what I would say is that for the bulk of the next several years, I drank occasionally. It was social drinking periodically. And then In 2010, I had an extremely serious bicycling accident in a large race, a stage race. We were coming down the backside of a mountain. There were still about 100 of us together in the the Peloton, and somebody at the front of the field lost control. We were cruising at about 55 miles an hour, and there was perhaps an average separation of one to two feet between each of the cyclists. And... All you have to do is turn on the TV and watch the Tour de France to see how that plays out. We all ended up going over top of each other, and I hit the pavement at 55 miles an hour. There were several surgeries involved to put me back together. And I was very lucky. I wasn't unconscious. I didn't have any head injuries. There were other people in that accident that, that, who did not fare as well but I did still have some significant injuries and a substantial amount of physical pain that went with those injuries. I was prescribed painkillers at the time, but they made me extraordinarily nauseous. So I didn't like taking those, but I needed something to quell the pain. And I happened to have a lot of wine on hand just because of my, uh, my drinking habits. I suppose you might say at that point, my familiarity with it and i was also a hobbyist winemaker so there there really was plenty of wine on hand at the time and i started using wine around the clock to dull the pain so you know the seed was planted for the future that at least in the context of physical pain alcohol numbed that
0: so that was your first discovery that alcohol numbed physical pain but then you made a second discovery
1: Yes. Several years later, I was in law school, and any of us in the legal community, I would imagine, can identify with the stress and pressure that go with the first semester of law school and those first exams. And I went home at Thanksgiving break, but I chose not to visit my ailing grandfather, who was uh, Bob Jr., and, uh, the namesake of the family, if you will. And I thought he had plenty more time, or at least that's what I told myself. So I chose not to visit him during that break and that I would have plenty of time over the winter break after the final exams. And I got back to school and within maybe a day or two, I found out that he had passed away and that was only a couple of days before my first final exam. That really, that really did a number on me psychologically and emotionally, and I didn't have any good tools for dealing with any of that at that point in my life, and so what ended up happening was just before my first final exam, I had what I can only imagine was probably a panic attack and extreme anxiety, and I decided that I would have a very stiff drink. I remember going into that very first exam. It was civil procedure. And even even accounting for how difficult a civil procedure exam as a 1L might be, the first multiple choice question took me 20 minutes to read and reread and reread because the drink had been that strong. But I got through the exam. And then a few days later, it was time for the next exam. I, again, was feeling extreme anxiety, tried a stiff drink again to quell the nerves. It felt like it worked. So I continued that process. When grades came out the following month, it turned out I had done quite well. So a seed was planted that alcohol could also numb emotional pain and help with that anxiety. I then proceeded to go through three years of law school without ever taking a single test, writing a single essay or paper, or giving a single oral argument or presentation without at least some amount of alcohol in me. And I did quite well.
0: That's just amazing. Imagine how you would have done without the alcohol.
1: I often <laughs> wonder, I often wonder the counterfactuals, but all I know is what actually happened and The way I saw it was I had the perfect justification and rationalization for doing what I was doing.
0: So there's a pretty telling sentence in your article where you talk about how you were succeeding in law school, but you managed to alienate or push away every friend that you had made along the way.
1: I think like many alcoholics, I held on to this notion that because professionally, or at the time as a student academically, I was doing so well that none of the other consequences that were happening around me mattered Mm. in terms of my drinking. Mm. And I think we see that all the time. You know, I haven't lost a house yet or I haven't lost a job yet, or I haven't done X, Y, and Z yet. Well, for me, I was doing really well in school And so that was my rationalization for the idea that there wasn't a problem or rather the, that was the support for the denial. But despite the fact that I was doing very well academically in hindsight, the relationships with people and family were really suffering. Um, As I look back, People didn't want to spend time with me nearly as much as I had. I wasn't getting invited to things in one situation. I was actually asked to take a step back from an organization that I was part of because I was no longer considered a reliable, responsible member of that organization. I believe that I was right. They believe they were right. it led to some incredible resentments on my part that I had to work through later. But in hindsight, I don't think any of that tension or friction would have occurred, but for my drinking.
0: Interesting. So what happened with the bar exam?
1: So after three years of rinse and repeat, or three years of very successful drinking in my mind, I thought, why change what worked? I spent the whole summer drinking. I think I might have I had the bar exam books close by, or maybe I was holding them thinking that I'd learn everything via osmosis. By the time the bar exam rolled around, I had gotten to the point that I needed to be drinking regularly. My body depended on it and I felt sick if I didn't. So I actually took a cooler with me to the bar exam so that during the lunch break, I could have something to top myself off with. It turns out that was not a winning strategy for passing the bar exam. (laughs) I know that's going to come as a shock to our listeners, but I did not, in fact, manage to drink for 12 weeks straight, not study and still pass the bar exam. So for the first time in my life, I had failed and not just failed anything, but failed a test of minimum competence. And that did a real number on my ego and my self-confidence. And at that point, Whatever thread I was holding on to snapped, the wheels came off, whatever metaphor you want to use. And at that point, all bets were off. I was drinking profusely.
0: Mm. So tell us what got you to the point of surrender.
1: So the first part of what got me to surrendering was actual medical complications of my drinking. I'm sure that the many years of heavy drinking were taking its toll, but especially after I found out that I failed the bar exam, that extremely heavy drinking for a period there led to a chronic vitamin deficiency, which resulted in acute ascending peripheral neuropathy. Basically, my nervous system was deteriorating. At the time I was seen by the medical professionals, it had just been two weeks that I had gone from a tingling in my toes to an almost entirely numb lower body. And the medical professionals estimated that within two more weeks, I probably would have been on a respirator. Wow. And so there really wasn't, there really wasn't any choice in the sense of medical intervention. but The question at that point became, would it be pure medical intervention or would it be something more? And that's where the decision to go to treatment and then at the encouragement of LAP, stay for an extended professionals program came in.
0: So walk us back through how you ended up contacting LAP.
1: When it was decided between me, my family, my medical professionals, the doctors, that I needed to go to treatment. And not just for the immediate medical intervention, but also to address the underlying alcoholism. The first phone call that I made was to an associate dean from my law school. In the back of my mind, I just had this vague recollection that this seemed like the kind of thing that was in this particular individual's wheelhouse. Every time the student body got together and this particular associate dean was talking, the, the associate dean for student affairs, every time the associate dean for student affairs was talking, it seemed like somewhere there was a plug for mental health, wellness, and so I trusted that she would have the knowledge or resources to help point me in the right direction for what to do next. She did, and she suggested I contact the North Carolina Lawyer Assistance Program. At that point, I called and was put in touch with one of the clinical coordinators, and I explained the situation. I explained that I had a check-in time at a rehab facility in Western North Carolina, and I was told, excellent, you're doing what you need to do. We'll be in touch in a few weeks after you've gotten your feet under you. And sure enough, that's how it played out.
0: Interesting. So I remember when you first got out of treatment and you were going to the lawyer support group meeting in your area. I remember you in those early days. Tell us a little bit what that was like.
1: So I think it's important to understand that like so many others, I didn't come out of treatment convinced that I was an alcoholic.
0: Mm.
1: I think because of the way I ended up in treatment, I was still able to be in denial and convince myself that I had all these other co-occurring issues, anxiety, obsessive compulsiveness, I'd run into a hard time, really any other excuse. And while it was apparent to me that I had a problem, And it, and there was no doubt. And while no doubt my life was unmanageable, I wasn't convinced that alcohol was the reason. So I didn't really make a full step one decision right away. So I got to those meetings and I was under contract by that point.
0: Who placed you under contract? Was it a condition of your continuing employment at your firm?
1: No, totally voluntary.
0: Oh, so it was a self-referred. Okay.
1: I was a self-referral for the contract because I recognized that I had not yet passed the bar and there was always the chance that having gone to treatment recently, I would end up facing a character and fitness hearing. So I wanted to make sure that NC LAP had my back should that happen. And so I agreed as a self-referral to go on contract so that y'all would have the evidence you would need to be able to support me should I end up at a character and fitness hearing.
0: Did that end up coming to be? What was your admissions process like?
1: That actually never happened. So I did everything as insurance. It never came up and we were all set. I I passed the bar the next time I sat for it and there was never a question of character and fitness and I was sworn in.
0: Interesting. But so circling back to going to the meetings, you weren't convinced that you were an alcoholic, you were doing all the right things under contract.
1: Right. So I was, I think that because I was never completely convinced that alcohol was the problem, I was doing everything under contract that I needed to as an insurance policy for becoming licensed to practice law. Once I was licensed to practice law and I no longer needed the insurance, It didn't take long for me to cancel the insurance. (laughs) I stepped away from the lap contract. And it was not long thereafter that my sponsor actually relapsed. Mm. And that was about all the excuse I needed at that point to go out and do some more research myself. I, I went back out. I did some research for a couple of weeks. I was then convinced nothing serious happened, but I could tell that that absolute unwavering obsession of the mind had returned. And I'd been going to meetings and been part of the process long enough to know that with that obsession having returned, anything else that I wanted to tell myself that meant I wasn't an alcoholic was just a yet. I just hadn't gotten there yet. Mm. And so I knew, you know, nothing, nothing ruins drinking like a head full of recovery.
0: (laughs) This is true.
1: Yeah. And so I I saw the writing on the wall. I'm very grateful for that. And I was able to uh, get myself back into the recovery community very quickly. And at first I felt like kind of, I was walking back with my tail between my legs, but as so many others, I believe have experienced, I was welcomed back with open arms and given a pat on the back for finally having made a true step one decision.
0: A true surrender.
1: A true surrender, not a conditional surrender.
0: Did it feel different for you the second time around?
1: Undeniably. The first time I wasn't convinced I was an alcoholic. I was convinced my life was unmanageable. I was convinced I had problems, but I was not convinced that alcohol was the problem. The second time that I came back in, there was no longer any denying that alcohol was a problem. And what I came to accept was that sure, alcohol might not be my only problem, but alcohol was undeniably a problem. And that was enough to qualify me to be part of the recovery community.
0: Interesting. Well, I wanna ask you this question about when you went to treatment, lawyers feel very self-important. We often think that we're indispensable. And you have a section in your article where you describe coming up with these elaborate stories to explain your absence.
1: No one seemed to care. As I've come to learn in recovery, the things I worry about in my head are far different than the things other people worry about. No one wanted or seemed to be concerned with the details of why I had been sick or away. They just cared that I was better and I was back.
0: They didn't even ask you why you were gone?
1: No. In fact, some people didn't even notice, but hey, that's the benefit of working at a big law firm.
0: (laughs) So parting advice.
1: Reach out and ask for help. There's no downside.
0: Well, thanks so much. Thanks for taking the time with us today.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us at The Sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.